Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which this is recorded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Sally Hepworth. I was super excited to be joined by Sally. We recorded this over the internet so there were a few sound issues so I do apologise about the sound in this and there is a tiny bit of talking over each other because there was a tiny delay on there as well. So I do apologise about that. It gets better as it goes along but I just thought I would flag it. This is a wonderful episode with the great Sally Hepworth. We're good. Oh, amazing. Yeah, you can yeah hear me. good. You all right if I kick it off? Yeah, let's do it. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Nature or Nurture, the podcast where I interview fascinating people on the key milestones that make them who they are today. And I am lucky enough to be joined by someone I've stuffed around so many times to do this interview. It is the wonderful Sally Hepworth. Welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. And I actually (laughs) will argue with that. I think I stuffed you around more than you stuffed me around. So it is a miracle that we're here. and I'm very happy about it. We've started with a disagreement on the podcast, which is always a good place to start. <laughs> Let's see where it goes from here. <laughs> yeah. Now, Sally, I like to start this interview by asking a question that I always say is a simple question, but it's absolutely not at all. The question is, do you think nature or nurture had the greatest impact on who you are today? It is a hard question. I've been pondering yep. this and the old me would have said nature because I think as a parent myself Mm. that makes me feel much better about you know my parenting choices you know they were born that way (laughs) yeah there was nothing I could do um (laughs) and you know I I didn't have to blame myself for for their um their life's troubles (laughs) but you know I I have been my latest book is about foster children and I had to do a lot of research into nurture um, and, mm-hmm. and the effects that that has. And, you know, there's no question that um, when you look at the statistics and things that nurture is extremely important um, and, mm. you know, can be a, an indicator of, you know, just very different kinds of, of lives. And so for me it's really hard to know and, and I am mm. you know, incredibly blessed and lucky and fortunate that I was born into a, a you know a family my parents are still happily married and um, I had a good childhood and equally um, you know the nurturing was pretty good both from a, a perspective of you know home was a safe place which is not the case for everyone and you know mm. books were were provided and encouraged and we were um, you know able to to visit museums and um yeah 
So it's really hard to pick it apart. I mean, I will say that my mum is an English teacher. She has written a number of um, non-fiction books and has recently written a novel and was mm-hmm. always teaching me to read and and nurturing my love of story. So it's, again, was it nature or nurture? I don't know. She's a lot like yeah. me in that way, but she also fostered it. So is that the worst answer yeah. you've ever had? It's, it's basically no, no, I, absolutely I win. I win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you win. I'll throw someone else under the bus and say absolutely not. What was a little Sally Hepworth like growing up? What, was, what, what were you like when you were little? Were you hanging out with similar people? What kind of environment were you growing up in? Well, I had two older brothers who were twins and uh, only 17 mm-hmm. months older than me. And so I really was within the family a little bit of a loner in the sense that they were always together. Um, A lot of the family friends that we spent time with had a lot of boys. Um, And so I think in a way that probably fostered my love of reading Um, and I was I was fairly introverted. I was that kid that read at lunchtime, you know, walked around with a book um, (laughs) (laughs) and and definitely had those kind of little insecurities, um, quite conscious of myself and how I might appear Mm -hmm. to other people, um, very close to my mum and, um, you know, a a good girl. You know, I didn't want to rock the boat. I wanted people to be happy with me. Um, yeah, that, that's who I was. Thoughtful and 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 a daydreamer. And interestingly, I've been diagnosed with inattentive ADHD as an adult, um, which apparently is very common with writers because there's something about that dreamer state and the ability to mm. block out all other things except the book you're reading or the um, that thing that you're thinking about that helps you to go deep in creating characters. I guess. Yeah. Did you did you always know you had that? Was that an inkling for you or did it did it change your perspective of yourself when you found out? Well, I found out after my daughter was diagnosed and my paediatrician explained her diagnosis in a way that just made so much sense to me in my childhood. Mm. And he said, you know, I said that well that sounds like me and he said, "Well, you probably have it too." And and he said, um, in fact, a lot of creative people, he said the majority of um, the adults he knew with ADHD were writers, musicians, mm. um, actors. Yeah. So, you know, they were all, you know, highly creative. Um, and so, I mean, it was a surprise. I hadn't thought of, I, I thought of ADHD as that kind of naughty little boy, fidgety kind of um yeah, which, yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't identify with that, um, but certainly, <laughs> you know, certainly this I, I do, and and I've seen with my daughter, who's the same as me, in in those ways, her identifying it while she's still at school has been really beneficial for her um, to be able to concentrate more on what she's mm. actually needing to be concentrating on instead of what's going on in her head. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure a double diagnosis from a paediatrician was a lot cheaper, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that didn't count. I had to actually go and get my own okay. oh, diagnosis. I'm so sorry. But, yeah. 
<laughs> now, a lot of people say, Sally, when, you know, going back to childhood, when you meet someone's parents, they suddenly make sense. I had a friend of mine that met my parents were like, oh, no, you suddenly make sense in my head now. For you, do you think you are a perfect combination of your parents? You said you're very close to your mum. Are, are you similar to mm. your parents in any way? Uh, I'm more similar to my dad, I, I would say. Mum um, and I are very different. Um, yeah, She always says I'm... I'm a lot like my dad, which is why she likes me so much, which I think bodes well for <laughs> for their relationship. Yeah, it would be terrible if it was why she didn't like me. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I wonder if people would say they that I make sense when they met my dad. I mean, I look a lot like him. Mm. My mannerisms are a lot like his. But speaking of the nature-nurture thing, I have had a very different life to him. So my dad lost mm. his mother when he was three. He then lost his father when he was 11. He was raised by his grandparents. He lost his sister at a young age and, you know, really grew up in, uh, you know, not poverty but a very kind of lower working class family and, uh, yeah. you know, he worked really hard to to create the life that he had. I grew up in a family with, you know, two parents who are still alive and um, who created a safe home. So, yeah, mm. it, it is that different. I think I, I'm more um, in touch with myself and my feelings, more willing to to look at myself because I have been so lucky in terms of, of the life that I've had. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what was a, what was a young, like Sally Hepworth when you were, you know, reading books and you're walking, reading around and, you know, very, very much you described as a loner. How did you, how did you start the path to wanting to write? Did you have aspirations? I know you worked in different fields before you became a writer, but what was the idea for you when you were little? Did you have big aspirations of being a writer? What, what was the dream? I did. Well, well, I uh, I decided I wanted to write a book when I was seven and I yep. uh, was pretty good. I was pretty um, focused when I decided to do something and I sat down the same day I made that announcement. I wrote a book of short stories and I then rang up my aunt yep. who published school textbooks at the time and I said, I've got a book for you to publish. Yep. And, uh, and when I when I did eventually publish my first book, you know, 20 something years later, uh, mm. my mum had that first book and she brought it along, oh. uh, to the Lord. What was and, the first book? She, it was, oh, so the first book I ever wrote, it was called Mustard yeah. Ink and it was a book of short stories, uh, yep. by Sally Caradus, which was my, my maiden name. And it says <laughs> on the back, copyright 1988. Uh, You've got to get that in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Legally you have to get that in. <laughs> It was always I was on top of that even back then, um, and then it, then I was thirty one I think when I I published the next one and uh, yeah so I mean in a way my mum always says it was written in the stars and and I think well why didn't you tell me mum you know when I went to university <laughs> and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and I yeah you know, dilly dallied why didn't you tell me you know hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> I definitely I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know it was something that you could do. Like it, it's not like being a dentist yeah. or a nurse or a, you know, that you go to university and you come out and and you seek employment. Um, it felt quite fanciful yep. as a as a job, and 
um, I couldn't have done it before Google uh, when I decided to to write a book. It was yeah. 2009. I was on maternity leave with my first mm-hmm. child and I Googled how to write a book um, because I thought, right, wow. I'm going to write a book this year in all my spare time with my new baby. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and look, I did it. I wrote, it was a very bad book, but um, by the, by yep. the grace of Google, <laughs> I, uh, I figured out how to, how to do it. So yeah, I it love, definitely I love it's the, always um, was a dream. Yeah, well, I love I love you saying the, the big spoiler that you did it because you absolutely did it and you went on to be a best-selling author. What what was the first thing that came back from Google that you took on board? How, how did you sit down and write your first book when you were had a newborn baby and, and you'd never really, apart from the short stories, which I'm, you're mustard and ink, how did you actually go back and, and go, oh, no, I'm going to sit down and write this? What was the process? Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, the Google spat out a number of different ways that one could write a book. Google's always very mm-hmm. good like that. And the one <laughs> yeah. I chose was called the snowflake method. And it, whenever I say this, because I've told this story a few times, all the aspiring authors in the room start writing it down and I say, no, don't write it down. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> used that technique since then. And, look, it could be a good technique. Yeah. Um, and I don't totally remember it that well, but what it was for me was a way in, you know, because it becomes from being mm. this esoteric kind of, you know, how does one write a book and and how silly you'd feel just opening up a, a document and what if it didn't go anywhere? I mean, this was the, a lot of people do do that, but for mm. me that felt just terrifying and stupid. And so what finding a way of doing it and it could be anyway and following those directions did for me was it allowed me to put aside the fear and actually just follow the steps one by one um Mm. not that it's as straightforward as that but um it gave me permission and and some people will do a writing course to give themselves permission they might Mm -hmm. go and you know uh, do a degree they might um there's online courses and things I think a lot of people have to just get that something to make them feel like, you know, I can give this a go. And for me, that was that particular method. But since then, I've gone on and tried every single method. And I don't know that one is better than another or better than having no method. It's just that, um, (laughs) you know, in in the end, you end up with a book, which is is good news. I guess it wasn't a shock to your mum, you know, because it was apparently written in the stars for you to be a writer, but was it a shock to people around you? Was it a shock to to your old workmates that you were going to go on and be, you know, be a best-selling author? Again, not really. A lot of people who knew me thought was, Mm. you know, of course, of course. And um, while I didn't write novels before all the people that I went to school with you know a lot of them have come out of the woodwork and said oh we remember that your stories were always read out you know in class or you know they were published in the the school yearbook or um even I lived overseas twice once in London in my 20s and and in Canada in my 30s and my friends all said we used to look forward to your emails you used to write these really funny kind of wrap-up emails and um, it's just the storytelling has always been in me Um, and so in a way I think most people 
haven't been surprised. But at the same time, Mm. I guess the level of success, you know, the fact that they can now see my books in, you know, a lot of bookstores and that, um, you know, I I tour and, and do things or they come and see me speak and there's other people, you know, that we don't know that are reading my books and enjoying them um, every now and then they, like I do, when I see my friends doing well in their careers, they kind of step back and go, wow, Sally's, you know, Sally's doing pretty well in that way that family and friends say, (laughs) like it's a big surprise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for you, when I, I guess, you know, writing that first book and getting it out there and your parents seeing it for the first time, I mean, were your parents storytellers? Is that where you kind of got that from? Yeah. But I mean, in different ways, mum, as I said, was an English teacher. She's got the most beautiful mm. uh, grasp of the English language, the way that she speaks, the way that she writes, the way that she describes things. Um, she's very. Uh, intellectual and academic my dad mm-hmm. is is compl- and more like me in the sense that he is a storyteller so it's not about the words or the um you know the beauty of the sentence it's about he knows how to deliver a mm. punchline he's very funny and yep. really understands timing and um you know all, all that stuff so I could have leaned on on both of them but while neither of them have become yep. novelists, they definitely have got um, those those traits that make a good novelist. Yeah, yeah. And so, when you were when you were going to university, was the plan to work in HR? What was what was the plan? You kind of said you were figuring it out. Did you go? You said you went overseas and everything. Was there a long time of figuring out what you wanted to do? Yeah, there, there was. And in fact, before I even went to university, I went to one of those open days at, um, at, at RMIT and it was for the journalism course at RMIT because I knew I loved words. I knew I was good at writing. And I remember sitting there mm. in the little seat and the tutor or the person running the course said, if you do journalism, you need to read all the newspapers every day. You need to watch the news. You need Mm -hmm. to understand these political things. And I just thought, nah, I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to do. (laughs) Um, That seems quite different. And I suppose now there are courses in creative writing, but they either didn't exist then or I didn't know about them. Um, so I ended up doing an arts degree, which, um, Mm -hmm. I could have, I had a, you know, quite a good score that would have got me into doing, you know, some other thing, but I just didn't know. And, uh, -hmm. I did my arts degree and then I went overseas because that's the best thing to do when you don't know what to do next. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. After an arts uh, degree, it's a great thing to do. uh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, that's where you'll find us all, all of us arts degree yeah. graduates. Um, <laughs> and uh, I worked as a nanny in London mm-hmm. for two years. I then travelled um, around Europe and then Central and South America. When I came back, I just I got a job as a receptionist at an event management company and I remember mm-hmm. my mum saying to me, you know, these things grow legs, you know, you you start doing this and then, you know, it can turn into that and and then you realise that you're interested in this. Just go and do something and see where you mm. end up. And I think that's such good advice. I, I kind of moved up the ranks at that event management company. I did, um, I mm. became an event manager, 
worked on some really exciting things, went over to um, Canada with my husband and Mm -hmm. I then retrained and did an HR diploma because I thought maybe I'll do HR because I loved the gossip, you know, and I wanted to know how much everyone (laughs) was paid. (laughs) So I... The two big things. I thought... The important stuff, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I did that for, a, I did that for a while, and I really liked it. Um, mm-hmm. But whatever I was doing, whether it was HR, event management, um, I was just storytelling. You know, I would, I wanted mm. to do the writing stuff, whether it was writing the emails that were going out for the marketing or, um, organize, you know, organizing the policies and procedures and writing them. I loved that, and so. Yeah, when I decided to write a novel, I mean, I didn't think that it was going to turn into a whole career in itself, but mm. I thought that it would be an outlet. And, uh, yeah, I, I kind of went into it with no expectations other than I'm going to try and write a book while I'm on maternity leave. Um, yeah. And, and I, yeah, it, it went from there. But um, but an interest in people and an interest in writing has been something that's been consistent all the way through my my jobs. Yeah. What was the first, like going to take a book to a publisher for the first time? Did you, did you Google that? Did you just go and decide that you were going to, yeah, wow. You just took it to a publisher and said, I've written a book. I've never written a book before. No, but I Googled it and I, once I had Googled how to write a book and then I wrote the book and then I finished Mm -hmm. writing it and I Googled how to get a book published. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And, uh, and Google, once again, was very helpful and it told me <laughs> that you could go direct to publishers in Australia, um, but in mm-hmm. most of the other parts of the world you needed to have a literary agent. And I thought, oh, that sounds that sounds good. I should get one of those. And mm-hmm. they essentially are the ones who will take you on as a client and then they will try and sell your book on 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 your behalf and mm-hmm. you pay them 15% of, of what they sell. Now, that in itself was an incredibly difficult process, more difficult than writing the book um, because yeah. they kind of choose you in a way that they take the risk on you and they don't get paid unless unless you get paid. So, yeah. um, so that's where I started, a lot of pitching to literary agents, um, a lot of rewriting of the book, started mm-hmm. working on the next book, um, and I got the agent with the first book, but then that book didn't sell. I then mm-hmm. wrote another book that didn't sell. And then the third book was The Secrets of Midwives, which mm. the agent did sell and that sold all around the world. And then retrospectively, uh, my first book, which the worst book in the world, uh, <laughs> ended up selling to a German publisher and that book has been published, that very first book, only in German. And I'm so grateful for that because most of the people I know don't speak German and they, <laughs> so they will never read it. Um, but that was, a, that was a funny little kooky part of my story that I don't think has happened to any other author I know that I can say my first book was published in German and only in German and the only two words I understand uh, on that book is Sally and Hepworth. <laughs> for, for you when you you know when you had those two books that didn't sell how did you keep mm-hmm. going was it hard to kind of stay motivated when you're a new author and 
it's a new thing that you're taking on. Was it was it hard to keep going or was it just a passion that that you just wanted to keep going with? Yeah, it's such a good question. I and I I kind of don't understand it now because I'm a, you know, wizened old 43-year-old, you know, perimenopausal mother of three, but at the time I was so hungry for it and I never mm. considered stopping. Um, did I get disheartened? Yes, absolutely. And uh, but I always was, and still today, I was always focused on the next book. And mm. if that one didn't sell, I was working on the next thing. So all hope wasn't lost. And mm. by the time you know I was sending one book out, I was well into the next book. And so it really wasn't a case of I finished this, I'm going to put it out into the world and see what happens and if nothing happens, you know, that's the end because yeah. there was something new and and that has served me really well in my career because it means that I'm also never focused on the sales of any particular book and that's where I see yeah. it really harming a lot of authors who, you know, really understandably, um, you know, are just living for that book and its success yeah. rather than kind of plunging into the career of being an author. And, you know, it's so rare that that one book will hit. You know, you just need to keep yep. putting more books out there, you know, building your brand, um, getting people to be desperate for the next, you know, Sally Hepworth book. Yep. And for me it's always been about storytelling. So it's not about a particular book that's my love child that, needs to succeed. It's about me wanting to keep telling my stories and wanting them to keep mm. finding readers. Yeah. With, with putting out a book every every year, uh, going through that process, is that a hard thing? I mean, you know, being a mum of three and a very busy person, it must be a very hard thing to keep going with. Have you, have you got like a defined process now or is it, you know, still the same as, as when you started the snowflake uh, Googling of, <laughs> of writing a book? <laughs> No, it's not. I don't use the snowflake, and I haven't since that first <laughs> book. And maybe that's why it was so bad. Uh, so, in terms of the, the the managing of it, in the early days, I I was at home with a baby and working part time, and then I had another baby. So back then, the juggle was incredibly difficult, and I really didn't mm. have a lot of a social life. You know, my social time was writing the books. Um, mm. Ever since I had The Secrets of Midwives published, I've been a full-time author, meaning that... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My kids have been in full-time care or at school or with a nanny. Uh, and mm. then since the mother-in-law was published, my husband has become the stay-at-home parent and house, um, house husband. So mm -hmm. I don't do that juggle, I mean, any more than any other working mum. I don't have, not looking after my kids mm -hmm. and writing the books. So, you know, yep, that is sure. really important to say. Um, do I have a process that I follow? Um, yes, 
in the sense that it's always really haphazard. <laughs> and, yeah, and sure. What's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's changed, I guess, is that I now have got more confidence that I'll get there, even if it's really ugly yeah. and gnarly in the middle, because I've done it before. <laughs> yep. um, mm-hmm. But it usually involves a bit of plotting and a bit of mm-hmm. um, hoping for the best and a lot of just time in the chair, a lot of walks, a lot of showers, a lot of dreaming and thinking about it and then yep. just getting back to the desk. And And some books are harder than others and take more rewriting than others. Um, yep. And so it doesn't get it. I don't feel like I've nailed it and I don't think I'll ever nail it because mm. it's just about the book that you're working on and you know, sometimes they're just a real pain in the ass, and there's not much you can do about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sally, I like to ask a standard questions on the podcast that I ask every single guest. So I've got a list of questions, but before I ask those questions, uh, when when you look at going back to that question I asked, kind of at the start of the podcast, when you're know, saying if you're a, a split of your parents, when you look at your kids, do you see similarities? You know, with with your you and your husband. With those kids, are you are you starting to see those similarities? Yes. Oh, a hundred percent. There, my oldest child is my husband through and through, and yeah. my <laughs> middle child is, is me. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And she and she's the dreamer and the creative one, and um, and my son Oscar is very uh, maths and science, you know, which is exactly mm. like my husband, very literal and very, um, uh, you know, smart and, you know, just interested in, you know, everything. And then our littlest, Clementine, is probably a mix in the sense that she, she a, a mix or perhaps she's just completely her own person, you know. It's, mm. I, I feel like birth order is important too um, in, in who we end up being and mm. um, she is just a real free feeler, you know, she goes from being so happy to so angry and so, yep. um, and so sad. And I feel like she's kind of an unbridled me, you know, if I was allowed <laughs> to just throw a massive tantrum every yeah, time yeah, things yeah. didn't go my way, then, <laughs> then that would be me. But, um, there's Do a nature you... element for sure too. They, they, um, they are just who they are. Yeah. I think. Do you kind of, you know, with what your mum said about being written in the stars, do you think that you already have an idea of what your kids will go on and do? I mean, I want to say my immediate instinct is yes. I, I want to say yes, mm. I know exactly where they'll end up. Yeah, but sure. They constantly surprise me too. Um, mm. For example, we are not a sporty family, and I mean the yeah. Hepworth family. My family of origin, my brothers and my dad were really sporty. I was mm-hmm. never sporty. But my husband and I and our kids, not good at sport. That's not mm. our thing. <laughs> and this year we all choose a word for the year and my daughter's word was sport. And since then she started playing netball, she started doing gymnastics, and that's something I never would have picked for her. Wow. And so I think it's kind of important and I'm so proud of her and it's such a mm. wonderful thing and I'm just this new netball mum, uh, which I love. And I, <laughs> Congratulations, I that's morning. huge. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We won this morning, oh. by the way. Congratulations um, again. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it is kind of 
important, I think, as well, while we think we know them and it's lovely to feel known and for them to know that we know them. I don't want to mm. box them in either because um, I want them to, to to do whatever it is that they want to do, even if they're not yeah. very good at it or, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's their choice and it's so fun to be introduced to a world that wasn't wasn't my world. Like I hope that that, that happens more but... Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty happy with who they are now, and if that's who they end up being, then that's fine with me too. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, these these questions I ask every guest. So the first question is, what trait in people do you admire the most? What what kinds of people sense, are you drawn to? A sense of humour, a hundred percent. Yeah, I, I said recently that. Um, my friends have got a saying: "Tall cures all." I don't know if you've heard that. It's to no, do with I the fact that if. <laughs> And and I'm not heightest, right? So this has not been one for me, but it was back in the day that it was saying if you were a tall man, um, that even if you were a bit of a dick, you know, then it was okay because you were tall. And I always thought, well, that's dumb. Um, but, <laughs> but I've always thought sense of humour cures all. And, yeah. you know, there are some things that, that I really don't like about, you know, certain attitudes or things that I don't like about people. And mm. I've noticed that there are some people that I continue to have in my sphere, even though in theory I should have ostracised myself from them because I think some of their their thoughts are abhorrent, you know. But if mm. they're funny, they can keep me around, you know. There's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so magnetic yeah. and it's so powerful because if you use a sense of humour in the right way, it can kind of create good feelings for people. It can dilute, um, you know, bad feelings. It can mm. get people out of a t tense situation. It can help to negotiate a deal. You mm -hmm. know, it's it's a wonderful way to make light of the world when we take ourselves very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you could choose to be born into an environment, what would that look like? I mean, you know, you you kind of said that you had a really nice environment growing up. Was that kind of the perfect environment, do you think, for you? Look, it was. It was a great mm. environment. I think if I was asked that as a child, I would have wanted sisters. 100%. Yeah, sure. And, and I... I still think about because all of my good friends have at least one sister and mm. my mum is one of five sisters and also three brothers. It's a big Catholic family. <laughs> but I I always felt a bit gypped that I didn't have a sister, especially yeah. since my brothers were twins and both boys, so they mm. kind of had a built-in best friend. And I don't know, I, I felt like that was a relationship that I, you know, would have really like to have that said I really do think that we become who we are because of our upbringing and maybe yeah. the fact that that goes back maybe the answer was nurture then <laughs> <laughs> lock but, it in um yeah <laughs> because uh I think that maybe having a sister would have meant I was less in my head which maybe mm. would have meant that I was less uh developing that creativity creativity and then perhaps I wouldn't have been a writer so mm. I'm happy where I am now so yeah. probably I was born into the right environment. <laughs> yeah. uh, what's your favourite thing about yourself? Sense of humour. 
Mm-hmm. That's boring, isn't it? Because no, no, that's it. great. No, but, no, no. Uh, imagine if I was really harsh about it. I'm like, no, no, answer a different one. Yeah, <laughs> no, I can't do that again. No, no, no next. Uh, what do you wish you could do better? What's something you wish you could improve on? Oh, uh, sport. Yeah. <laughs> Especially after this morning watching the netball game. Yeah. Uh, oh, I mean, so many things. Mostly, probably life skills because Mm. the thing about having ADHD and and you know even without that just being me people say things like it's so amazing that you can write a book a year and you know it's so amazing that you can do what you do and I look at other people and say it's so amazing how you can just run your life like that yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah because I can write books but I pretty much can't do anything else you know I'm just I can't cook I'm so confused by, you know, getting places on time and like managing paperwork (laughs) and, you know, and and like cleaning the kitchen and stacking the dish. Like I I constantly just look around my house thinking, how, how does this happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And how do I make it go from this to like a clean house? And I'm just (laughs) perplexed. So I would love to have better life skills. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, who do you think influenced you the most? Uh, different people at different stages mm-hmm. of my life. I mean, early stages, my mum, absolutely. Mm. You know, it was a very bookish childhood, which I think explains where I am now. Um, but from the time I was probably 13, 14, it was my girlfriends, um, mm. and it still is, the, mm. the, the same girlfriends, and, and I now have more, but um, the women that I have grown up with and spend my life with are the most influential people in my life, including my husband, and mm. he would say, you know, he would agree with that. Um, I just I think if you're lucky enough to have good friends you spend your life with your friends. They're around yeah. before, you know, any life partner and often after, mm-hmm. and uh, and they're my counsel. Yeah. Do, do you have an author that you love? Do you have authors that you are constantly inspired by or people that you read every book that they, they put out? Oh, a hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, in Australia, Jane Harper is a, is mm. a friend of mine and, and one of my favorite authors um mm-hmm. leanne moriarty same thing just mm-hmm. uh, devour everything she's read uh jane cockram is another beautiful australian author mm-hmm. um and a friend um you know and, and then a bunch of american authors and um ann patchett you know has just had this amazing career and has opened a bookstore and that's something mm-hmm. i'd love to do uh, yeah, I mean, the people that inspire me, interestingly, are all older um, and, you know, I think women in their 50s and 60s are so inspirational yeah. for the lives that they've led and the things that they've managed and and it's not just the ones with the big achievements either, you know, that it's not just authors but just people who've had a long marriage mm. or they have lived through a, a loss of a child or a parent or a sibling, mm. you know, by the time you're in your 50s, you've seen some some trauma. Yeah. Um, and if you've got through it, I, I just find that so inspirational to listen to. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, who do you choose to surround yourself with now? What kinds of people? And do you think that's changed over time? Yeah, well, as I said, my girlfriends continue to be a big, big part, a big part mm. of my life. Um, but I'm in that that period, I guess, my 40s, where my life is really with my my family um, mm. of choice, you know, my, my three children and my husband and my dog yeah. uh, is where I, I spend the, the vast majority of, of my life and it's where I want to be, it's where I yeah. choose to be. Um, and I'm now at the point where I am making some decisions to ensure that that's where I continue to be. Not just for them, like I, I do feel like I want to be there for my kids, but also for me, I, I, um, I need them too, and yeah. they're my great leveler. We're all homebodies. We love to be together, mm. and as they get older, they're they're influencing me too with their little opinions and their life worldviews, and um, it's a really busy time, but it's a really mm. lovely time as well. Yeah. Uh, when are you at your happiest? Yeah, with those two, with my, my my husband and my kids and also the other time would be around a dinner table with my oldest girlfriends telling the same stories that we've told for, you know, yeah. I was going to say 50 years. We're not 50. We're 42, all of us. Yeah, yeah. To school <laughs> together. Uh, but it feels like 50 years, the same material, um, <laughs> and we're all going away on our annual girls' trip on Monday. And, oh, amazing. Uh, it's just a safe inspirational, um, you know, just a, a lovely um, life-giving relationship that we all yeah. have with each other. That's beautiful. Uh, when when are you at your lowest? Probably when I am not spending enough time connecting with people and, and that mm. is something that I do when I'm in the throes of a book and I, you know, when I'm really deep in it, it's like the rest of the world has to cease to exist. You know, I yep. can't kind of switch from a character going through something to picking up the kids from school or netball. And yet mm. often I have to do that. Yep. Um, and when that happens, I'm not fully present and mm. the kids notice it, I notice it, I feel guilty, I'm not giving the best of myself, I haven't figured that out. You know, mm -hmm. I don't have an answer for how not to be that way. But yeah it's when I'm at my lowest because I beat myself up for it and, um, you know, it's just everyone loses. And I guess the only way to counteract that is to when I'm emotionally available to give to them, I give yep. to them then. Yeah, um, yeah. And kids do need to know that that this is, you know, they can't get our 100% best self all the time too. Like I am mm. An advocate of kids having to understand the world the way that it is, um, but I still do strive to be my best self, you know, when I can. Yeah. So normal mother, you know, struggles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you could pinpoint a moment in your life that you think had the greatest impact on you, what do you think that would be? Mm. There was. I found this hard because I feel like moments are um, the big things, you know, mm. they seem like they'd be easy to find, but the things that impact me more are the slow things. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so I'll just, I'll briefly answer it. There is the, the moment 
that my aunt and godmother died very suddenly when I was 17 had mm. a profound impact on me. Um, and it just th- it was the first person that had died in my life and the idea of them being there and healthy mm. and then not there was was shocking in the way that, that death is shocking. Mm. Um, and I still think about her every day and it's something I, I call up when I am having a bad time and I think, mm. you know what, life is um, we're only here for the now. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that definitely had a profound impact. But at the same time, it's more periods of my life that have an impact that might be a whole year, you know, it might mm. be or a couple of years where things just haven't gone well, you mm. know, a series of, of bad things or a really difficult few years with parenting or marriage or a relationship with, you know, an ill parent. And I've looked back on the other side of it and thought, yeah, that that changed me that period because mm. I now I've learned from it or that broke a part of me yeah. that maybe is still broken. Um, but yeah, it's less apart from that one, it's more about the life feels like a a, a series of times now where you you know, the time with your little children, the time when your career's taking off, the time when your children are a bit older, and at the end of each the time when your parents are ill. Um, mm. and at the end of each one of those periods, you emerge a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't have to have an answer for this one. I think you've kind of already answered it anyway, but what's the hardest thing you've been through and did it change you? Yeah. Well, again, I, I do think that, that it is those, those periods, those big periods, um, of, mm. of your life as you look back on them. Um, getting, having undiagnosed ADHD, I think really affected me a lot Mm. in my child, in my childhood and my, um, my twenties. And I think the effect that that had was me always sort of telling myself that I was stupid. I wasn't very smart. Um, my mum and dad and brothers were very academically smart Mm. and, you do as a child, you're aware of where you you place in a family um, and I was never made to feel bad about it but I kind of internalised that I wasn't that bright mm. and so then getting the, the diagnosis as an adult, I have reflected on I wonder if things would have been different if I hadn't mm. been diagnosed earlier and not in a way that you know, gosh, I'm so I'm so angry because I know that diagnoses back then as well came with stigma and judgment and things. So it's neither here nor there. But yeah, I I do think that things that go through your childhood are more likely to kind of rest um, in your heart, even when you can intellectually know that's not true. Yeah, they become beliefs, don't they? That you have yeah. about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what gets you going now every day? What motivates you to keep going? Coffee. Coffee. No, um, yeah. I, <laughs> oh, I mean, it's so cliche, isn't it? My family, like they, my youngest daughter literally gets me going because she's beside <laughs> my bed. Um, <laughs> and I really, not to say that it's not hard because life is hard 
every day for all of the the reasons that we've said and my reasons are no more interesting than anyone else's aging parents moving house kids with um you know neurological differences things that you that you have to do it's hard but in an overall sense I love my life I love what I do for a job Mm. I love the people that are in my immediate circle yeah and the challenges I face by and large are um you know challenges that I'm able to to face yeah so yeah I think yeah that's probably not a great answer no it's a great answer the uh I like to uh, finish the podcast by asking the same question I did at the start do you think that nature or nurture had the greatest impact on you are you locking in nurture I think I am. Yeah. I think I am. For me, because yeah. I I think um, obviously some things to do with nature. I think that being born a, a man or a woman or with mm. different skin colour and, I mean, there are so many things about nature that makes a difference. But, mm. yeah, I think nurture was was pretty important for me. Yeah, absolutely. Sally Hepworth, how do people find you and every wonderful book that you've written? How do people, you know, connect with you and and see what you're up to? Thank you. Yes. Well, I'm uh, I'm on Instagram probably the most often and my mm-hmm. my uh, handle is at Sally Hepworth, so that's easy to remember. <laughs> and then my website is is www.sallyhepworthauthor.com. Mm-hmm. So you can find out everything about me and my books there. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Sally Hepworth, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.